When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Podcast markets with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. And he's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the world of markets. So, Sean, how you doing, man? I'm doing super good. Looking forward to today's talk. So, got your uh, got your daughter back home for some break out of the frigid, back. cold tundra of North Florida. And yeah, uh, I mean, uh, you know, we had to get her back down. It was too cold up there. You know, she start wearing actual shoes, not flip flops, and she didn't know, didn't know what to do. Can handle it. They had a. She have a good year. First year of college. She had a great year. She had a really awesome year. Did you know? Simulated well. Straight A's across the board on both semesters. So she's she did well. And uh, you know, I didn't hear any. I didn't hear from any authorities that there were any infractions with which I was needed to make aware of. No so like like my first year of college. Straight A's across the board. No phone calls home from anybody asking what your son's doing. No one. None of that kind of stuff happened either. So. Yeah, just exactly a carbon copy of what my first year of college sounded like. That's wonderful to hear. I'm, I, I have no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been a little bit of a pivot in there. Just, 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 just probably, a, probably you you underplaying your first year just a just a little bit, just a little. Skosh, just a skosh. 
All right, Sean. There's lots of stuff going on. Weather is now starting to creep into the conversation here and more and more talk about how dry it is. And uh, they're still holding on for this El Nino thing. But like we talked about last week, um, nothing is really shaping up to be to, to point that direction right now. April, like he's talked about, was the driest April since 1976, if I remember right. And, uh, you know, May is showing some signs of of a pattern of, of wetness here. Um, we have, we have, we have rain every day in the forecast out here. Um, and then clouds up and you can see where it's raining. It's not necessarily raining where I'm at, but it's raining someplace. Um, so you've seen some rain move into the forecast kind of across the entire Midwest, uh, into the plains and you're watching that work. But if you start looking at really long-term, um, weather, well, it's a one, it's a one week, it's a one week event, right? And then everything that I see says pretty much the rest of the month we're going to get back to dry, especially in the in the core areas of, um, you know, uh, Iowa, Illinois. You know that that central uh, grain belt looks like it's going to get you know pretty dry again. Now remember, we're not really expecting the drought to be focused out west. We're expecting the drought to be focused more center of the country, center east. So, um, you know, I do think you know, like Western Nebraska and the Dakotas probably have a better go of it this year. Um, but if you really want to have a crop problem, you need to get the core group involved, which they have not been involved since 2012. And given that the Pacific Decadal Oscillation moved to a minus three here in April, the second strongest April reading in history, um, we are going to have a negative PDO through, you know, through the majority of um, the growing season. And that's going to keep drier risks in place. For most of the growing season so yeah all right and that was that was a comment we had come through about that so they were talking about to talk about that a little bit what you see happening there they're talking about with it being dry as it is and and as warm as it could be um, when it does rain the rain will evaporate quickly well i, th- I think uh the hurricane season kind of fits into this as well okay. um the gulf Sea surface temperatures are very important. If they're very, very hot, it tends to funnel moisture up into the center east, Midwest. We've had very, very warm uh, Gulf, Mexico, you know, sea surface temperatures. And, and that's why we've had drought out west, but we had we had rain pump into the center east. They've cooled dramatically. They're actually below normal now. So, um, and I look back at 2012, 1988, 83, 55, 76. 36, 34, and all of them had a feature of cool or certainly not hot Gulf Gulf sea surface temperatures, which means we're not going to have that moisture pump coming up into the Midwest. It also means we're not likely to have any hurricanes of concert coming into the Gulf. You you know, a lot of times we have a drought pattern, drought pattern, and a a Gulf storm comes in and it piles into the Midwest, puts all kinds of rain, and it just, it's enough to just take the edge off, and then we have a good crop. Very, very unlikely it's going to happen because then number one, the sea surface temperature is not hot. Number right. two, El Nino is forming. And by the remember, hurricane season's not now. Hurricane season is really mid-August to mid-October. And as we, you know, we're going to have an El Nino weather pattern really starting to form during that time frame, which means wind shear picks up dramatically in the Gulf of Mexico. So anything that tries to go in the Gulf of Mexico, the wind shear is just going to just beat the storm to a pulp. Having said that, I'm hearing a lot of weather forecasters because 
They're taught El Nino means weak season. Nothing's going to happen. Remember last year, everyone said it was going to be very, very active because of La Nina. And it was one of the quietest seasons we had, other than we had one storm come up the West coast of Florida and create havoc, but it was a very, very low season. And we discussed back then why we thought it would be more of an active season. We think this year, I mean, less active. We think this year is going to actually be more active than most people are suggesting, not in the Gulf of Mexico, but more like what I'd say Atlantic based storms that could impact the Atlantic East coast. The reasons for that, uh, we don't have a lot of sun Saharan dust coming over this year. Like we had last year that, feeds into a better Atlantic uh, wave train, they call it, where the you get these waves coming off of Africa and they develop, they can develop now because we're not, they're not going to be piling into dry air, uh, dusty dry air aloft. Secondly, the sea surface temperatures of the main development region, they call MDR, is very, very hot this year, almost record setting hot. So you got a lot of juice that the storm can grab onto to develop and strengthen as it comes across without any dust. Now, as I said, the wind shear in a, in a developing El Nino means the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, it's just not going to be a, a, a target, but it could come in, you know, to that Southeast, mid-Atlantic, even the Northeast. You know, I'd be, I would be worried about a series of storms coming into the Atlantic coastline creating havoc this year. If I was, so, so my belief is we're going to have a much more active season than most people think, but not active where we've been accustomed to it, active on the East Coast. And um, and there could be some fireworks there, depending on how big and where exactly it hits, especially in the Southeast, if it were to create some issues with the you know cotton crop and that sort of thing down in that region, we'd have to you know keep a close look on that. So right on. Okay. So that feeds into the idea that not only do we have the negative Pacific decadal oscillation uh, that typically creates dry weather in the center of the country, but we're not going to have the, the Gulf pumping moisture in, which is going to keep also that area dry. The key issue is, are we going to get, you know, the heat? Because remember, there's something called an evaporation, um, uh, drought an evaporation drought development index eddi it's called they come out it's a daily index that comes out and it measures wind heat moisture and it shows you how fast things are evaporating um you can have rainfall but if you have too much wind and heat um it just doesn't last and it just as you were saying in the original part of your question is then it, it evaporates away and you don't get much good out of it we have the wind we have the dryness now we need the heat to come in the two things that we are following to give us a good clue on the heat are two things. One is the maiden Julian oscillation, which is this area of convection that kind of spins around. Um, typically, if you're going to get a hot weather, you want the uh, what we call a low amplitude or a weak signal maiden Julian oscillation, meaning we don't, it's it stays mostly sort of what they call in the null in the center of, if anyone see, ever sees a, one of these um, MJO graphs, there's a circle in the center. We want it to largely stay remotely in the circle or not sway away from it. Low amplitude means hot temperatures. The other thing is something called global angular momentum. I think we talked about it last time where we have um, sometimes the atmosphere is moving faster than the earth, which means you have a positive global angular momentum. High winds typically mean cooler weather. 
if the Earth is moving faster than the atmosphere, we have what's called a negative global angular momentum or very light winds or stagnant winds. That means usually typically a hot summer. So when you look at what the models are suggesting for the global angular momentum, right now we have a fairly positive global angular momentum, but it's looking to really nosedive into the end of the month and get close to neutral. Um, and if you look at most of the years that had very high heat and, you know, and, and were drought cycles, you had that nosedive of the global angular momentum into June that lasted at least into July to, to, to pump that heat in. So, so far, you know, that reading is giving us a good indication that we're likely to see the, the global angular momentum moving, you know, downward slope and, and potentially going into negative territory by June, which would bring the heat in. Um, the Manjuli oscillation, you know, it's, it's a little harder one to kind of uh, forecast just quite yet, other than um, what's interesting is that if you look at the the amplitude, like the last time it did a circle, it was very, very strong, one of the strongest in history. And if you look at this one, it's a very much more, it's much weaker. In fact, it's not even, even going to make it all the way around the, uh, the circle, um, showing that it's losing its amplitude. So, you know, I think mid, late May, we'll get a better read on that. But if we typically, once you start losing momentum in the spin and the, and the amplitude signal starts to weaken, um, it typically is setting up for a weaker amplitude made in Julian oscillation. So, you know, everything suggests that we should be on guard for uh, these things to happen. We'll be watching that evaporation uh, drought development index very, very closely. Um, we think that's really the indicator to watch because that, you know, doesn't mean we're not going to have any rainfall in a drought year. It just means that whatever rainfall does fall, if we have the evaporation index strong enough, it's going to come and go and, and the drought's going to just continue. And that happened in Argentina. We talked about that last week where we had, they had that three to four inches of rain, but the wind and the heat just, just took it away in a, in a week and we were right back in the drought mode and, and the market crashed and it went right back up. Yeah, you know, when when it realized it, it wasn't going to really do much good. So, right. yeah, that's uh. So you ever go to you go to air you fly a lot you know the airports and stuff you yep. know you the uh yep. where you're walking through the, the the concourses there and you you had those little places where there's like a like the escalator that runs across the ground but it's not like going down it's just going straight you know like a like a on a, like a motorized walking path you know what I'm talking about yeah. It must be one of those out here in Western Nebraska for the atmosphere because when it gets here, it just must speed up real fast, and that's why we get those wicked winds that we get constantly all the time. So, well, I, I, I mean, everyone knows knows how how you know if you put if you put moisture in a bowl and have no wind current flow at all, same you know at a certain temperature, and you have another bowl same temperature, and you apply a fan to it, and you wait to see which one evaporates more i mean we know it's going to happen it's it, it, the one on the right just just it just yeah. goes away very very rapidly and the one there could sit there forever wind's very very important you're you know it, it, it it's 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 um very few people really talk about it much it's always all we have is hot and dry but if it's hot and dry and windy that's how you really the whole dust bowl was termed that because of the winds that we had in the in the mid-1930s that really just added the final punch made those those Palmer drought severity index is black. Literally, the color black was so bad. So, looking forward to it. All right, <laughs> got one. Got another question here from Hillbilly Deluxe fifty five thirty four. All right, so 
Um, see, great content as usual. Haven't heard much from Sean on his long-term 40-year cycle cooling pattern. Does he think we are still moving into a cool, cooler weather pattern over the coming decades? Answer is yes. Remember, there's a 40-year cycle. So if you take the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and you combine them together, there's a 40-year cycle. Sea surface temperatures decline for 40 years and reach a trough, which we did in the early to mid-1980s. And then we rise for 40 years. And we're now reaching that peak, that 40-year cycle peak in sea surface temperatures. So right now, if you look at the global sea surface temperature reading, we're pretty much at a 40-year peak, just as we were at a 40-year trough 40 years ago. Sea surface temperatures determine the ambient temperature above it. If the sea surface temperatures are cold, overall temperatures in the earth are going to be cold. We show this in our presentations we do in front of conferences all the time. If the sea surface temperatures are warm, generally speaking, the air temperature of the earth is going to be hot. We've had 40 years of rising sea surface temperatures. We've had 40 years of generally warming temperatures, as we would expect to see, as we always see, based upon this oscillating 40-year cycle. That cycle is expected to peak out and turn down in 2025 if the cycle is to repeat as it has for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the answer is we're at, according to our work, the peak in SSTs. Now the sun's already gone quiet. So we have, you know, that's another very important feature to start getting the temperatures to start cooling. But then you parlay that with a peak in the sea surface temperature cycle. Both are gonna start to impose their forces 225 and beyond. And that's when the temperatures on the earth are really gonna start to show a a decided cooling trend versus the warming trend that we've been uh, experiencing, you know, for really since, since 1985. So the answer is everything's on, on, on board. We're just near the very, very tail end of that 40 year cycle, um, which is another reason to expect potentially a very hot summer, by the way, because we just have these 40 year highs in these sea surface temperatures that when in doubt, if there's a dome, you're going to have warmer temperatures than you did 40 years ago with the same setup. So. Gotcha. <clears throat> All right. Wasn't there a, didn't the April report come out like last week or something? Am I, am I thinking something about something else? Or uh, for like uh, April's WASDI report? Well, the next WASDI report is coming out uh, May 12th. So May that's shortly here. Uh, the the but, last one was, 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 a, was a month ago or almost yeah. a month ago. Never mind then, Sean. My mind's going crazy. This next report, you know, should be pretty bearish. Um, I mean, the, the USDA is going to put on their, you know, big yields. They're going to they're going to put those acres in. Um, they're going to you know assume terrible demand. So I, I'm expecting this uh, USDA report to be uh, you know pretty negative, and maybe the reason that we make new lows here in mid late May, like we've been forecasting, you know, um, many many people quickly determined that the Friday reversal in, in corn and soybeans were, were, was the low for the spring. I'm not sure of that. I don't think we've priced it all in yet. I think we have to price in the USDA planting way ahead of schedule um, from last night's report. And we're going to have even better weather going into mid-May. Like you said, we're going to get a little moisture here in at least the first week, which is going to keep the crop, you know, and then it's going to dry out. I mean, you just couldn't get better planting weather, which we forecasted on your show a long time ago. Um, Serena corn crop, 
there's always something to worry about, but I don't see anything there that's going to get the market excited. So I just think it's still going to be tough for the grain markets. I, I think we probably need to make new lows and new crop corn, new crop soybeans. Wheat might've made a low, Casey's. I think there's a good chance wheat has made a low, but I don't think corn and soybeans have. I think we have potentially more downside in the mid, late May. And then I think we can say we've priced it all in. And of course, we're not pricing in at, at all any chance of a drought. Everyone's predicting, you know, El Nino weather and it's just going to be phenomenal. And, you know, no one is even considering that we might actually have anything but perfect weather. And that's the opportunity for a livestock producer to lock in feed, to lock in meal, and obviously for farmers to counter hedge aggressive sales if they have done so. We don't think we're there yet. We haven't made that call yet, but we're we're sharpening our pencil as as we think we're getting closer to the ideal timing window right now. So okay. So you brought something up I was going to talk about when you're talking about wheat and what which look like there and in, in, in the grains overall. We have the Black Sea um corridor is back on the table. Russia, Ukraine, and Turkey and the UN are all getting together to talk about it. Russia's already talked about how they don't think they're getting the fair end of the deal, which I don't even know what that means. And then Russia, Ukraine said, hey, do you want to shut that down? That's fine. We've got plenty of ways to get our grain out other than that. So I guess, Sean, as you look at that right there, um, we've talked about Erdogan not getting reelected in Turkey and what that might look like. And and if that if he was the glue holding that together and if the new regime comes in, What's that look like? I guess, Sean, what's your thoughts there? And do you have an opinion right now about that? I still think at the end of the day, it's when Russia pulls back from undercutting the market. I mean, they've just, as long as they're willing to sell, now they may not be willing to sell cheap wheat anymore to Turkey and their friends anymore if, if, the, if a new regime comes in. Like I said, maybe Turkey was the one that convinced Russia that it was a good thing to sell cheap wheat to everybody. Um, but at the end of the day, Russia Russia determines the global price and everybody else trades a differential off of the Russian wheat price. So 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 if you look at it, you know, Casey wheat, you know, obviously we have a terrible crop, we can have very tight stocks, so we're trading at a significant premium to the Russian wheat price. Now, SRW, we hit, we're, we're in better balance, so we're trading pretty much you know, near the Russian wheat price. Uh, uh in 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 Europe, they're trading pretty close to the Russian wheat price. So, so differentially, the whole world trades off of the Russian wheat price. So to me, the number one price chart to watch is when does Russia back off or when do Russian prices start to rise, suggesting that supply and demand are shifting and that the reference price that everyone is going off of allows prices to start rising elsewhere. I think actually that's going to happen. Um, I think once we get out of May, we're going to see Russia back off. Their current crop, depending on who you talk to, is between 80 and 85 million metric tons versus 105 million metric tons last year. So they are not going to have the same amount of supply to sell onto the market that they had this past year. So I think that's going to give them pause and say, okay, we've sold a lot. We put a lot of money in the coffers, but I think they're going to say, we've done enough for now. We're going to back off. We have a smaller crop. Growing season has begun. Let's see what happens. Um, and if they do that, then that's when the U.S. wheat price can start to act better. Because the, the the trillion dollar question that I hear from everybody is why is wheat specifically KC wheat? You know, not why has it been struggling so much despite the fact that we have a terrible crop? And it's because it can't. It's trading at a huge 
premium to the Russian wheat price, we've already rationing demand or rationing export demand just by the fact that we're trading at such a premium to, to Russia. The market's done its job uh, because we don't set the price. In corn, we set the price. In soybeans, we halfway set the price with Brazil. But we don't, you know, we're like a, we're like a, you know, we're, we're fourth in line in setting the price in wheat. You know, we're, I'm not saying we're not important, but we're not the dominant person. We're not the dominant c- country that sets the, the, uh, the wheat price. And I think that's where a lot of, um, I don't know, I think a lot of people are not understanding that you, you just can't have <laughs> Casey wheat go to 10 if Russia's trading at, you know, six and a half. It, it, it's not going to happen. It's, I don't care what the wheat crop is, it's not going to happen um, because they they have too much supply and uh, and people will find a way to get access to that supply versus paying $10 for Casey wheat. You know right. what I'm saying? Yep. No, I hear you. I hear you. All right, man. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, oh, one more thing I want to talk about. Sure. April soybean imports are far less than expected. Um, with them opening up, obviously they're getting a lot of beans out of, out of Brazil. And that's, that's no, that's not a big news flash there, but as you look at China right now, and you talked about reopening, what that was going to do, do you still see that that same um, build up in China as far as reopening and, and the amount of commodities and those kind of things that they're going to need to have take place? The, the reopening has been slow, um, but it is starting to accelerate, and we are going to see some very good demand later on in the year. But remember, African swine fever is crushing right. feed demand right now, just crushing. We've talked about this for months now on your on your show. Um, if you look at the corn price domestically in China, crashing. If you look at the soybean price in domestically in China, crashing. Soybean meal price, crashing. They don't need to feed. Right. They don't need it. So that's another reason to be worried about grain markets heading to mid-late May because they just, right now, they do not need it. Now, they will need it later uh, when they start rebuilding the herd. And then what's going to happen is, yeah, they, their, their economy is going to be starting to kick. The demand for pork is going to go through the roof. The pork price goes through the roof. Then you know, then the hog price is going to go. Through, you know, then they're going to need all kinds of feed later on there. So the, there's an exciting demand side story for U.S. and global feed prices later in the year, just not now, Casey. It's just not happening right now. And so, you know, and that's another reason why our hog price, the U.S. hog price, is struggling right now because domestic demand is very weak because of the slowing U.S. economy, and China doesn't need doesn't need the pork right now. Mm-hmm. So. So, you know, that's just one of those things that you could not have predicted necessarily that ASF would become a problem again, but it has. And now that it has, we have a very definitive template to work with, with depressed demand, more demand timing, you know. So that's why it's so important, in my opinion, for livestock producers to fortuitously look at some of these lower prices later on in May and afford that economic advantage. Because if if we have... Weather problems, as I suspect we're going to in June and July, and we start getting signals from China that their hog herd is starting to, um, the hog price is starting to go up and demand starting to go up and they're going to herd rebuild again and the feed demand is going to kick in, then we could have a, you know, a pretty wild situation. The other thing to really pay attention to, and it's not something we normally pay attention to, but India has, India has been... Um, They've had seven years of incredibly good weather, and they've been able to produce seven years of incredibly good ag production across the board. 
and it's allowed their economy to grow and grow and grow and domestic demand to grow and grow. But we've noticed that just this last year, there was a little weather volatility that was unexpected and their crops were off just a little bit. They pull back on exports on rice, on wheat, on cotton, on sugar. And now they're importing milk because they had the worst, uh, their milk production uh, growth rate is at the lowest in like 25 years because of poor feed, uh, uh, high feed price, low quality feed, um, and um, and some unfavorable weather that stressed out the cows. So, so if we have a very poor growing, if we actually have our first bad uh, weather growing season for India, the first one in seven years this year, as we're forecasting, uh, Casey, I mean, I think they could be like panic buyers of a lot of, of a lot of ag products. Remember one of their very, very important protein uh, intake is pulse crops, your lentils, your chickpeas, flaxseed, that sort of thing. And if they don't, you know, I, 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 there's a potential that we could have China and India both buying, importing large at the same time for the first time in history at a time when I think, uh, you know, that the, that the ending stocks of the world, which everyone's expecting to be much larger, may turn out to be significantly smaller if the U.S. growing season isn't quite as perfect as, as the market is currently pricing in. So that's the setup we see. Um, that's the opportunity we see. Now, remember now, though, you know, 2024 is your El Nino year. 2024 is your cool, wet growing cycle. 2024 is the record yield for the U.S. 2024 is where, you know, is, is where you get the ending stocks to go through the roof. 2024 is where you make the hard low in grain markets, in my opinion. So the producer needs to be looking at if we get a significant weather spike higher over the summer, let's say into the fall, based on everything we've just mentioned about demand and all that sort of thing, you want to not only finish up and button up your 2023 sales, but you're going to want to get out on the curve and really, really get aggressive on 2024 sales. And I would even say get some 2025 sales on because if you bury the corn market with two and a half billion bushels of ending stocks or more, even if the following year is a poor crop, you still have one year to eat through before you get into trouble again. You follow what I'm saying? So, so that's the strategy that you know we talk about in our reports to our subscribers. Um, and that's where we're getting geared to set up to make those important decisions as they, uh, as they arrive uh, between here and the end of the year. And so that would be what I would be, to me, that's the takeaway that I would like to you know, put out there and, and, and kind of get those that listen to your show kind of in alignment with what I think is the more probable pathway forward than the current improbable pathway forward that most price forecasters and weathermen are suggesting right now. So. Okay. All right, Sean, good place to stop. Uh, folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you're doing. What's the best way to get a hold of you at Hackett Financial? Uh, our website is Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. We have our Twitter page at Faridex, F-E-R-I-D-E-X 11. And we also have a, a LinkedIn page. And you know, from time to time, we put on interviews uh, from you and others that go over some of this work, some of these long-term cycles, the sun, the oceans, La Nina, El Nino, 
quasi-binding oscillation, maiden Julianat, you know, all these different things that we talk about that uh, are very important to what's actually going to happen to weather. Remember, we are 100% objectively, statistically, data-centric, correlated-based. Um, you know, we, we try to let the numbers tell us what's likely to happen, and we try to keep our opinions out of it as much as we possibly can. Got so, okay. Sean, appreciate you being on the podcast, man. Thanks, Casey. It's always a blast. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and check out the video version of this over on the YouTube channel called Moving Iron Podcast. So check that out. Um, want to see more information about what's happening with Moving Iron? Go to movingironllc.com. Going through a complete revamp of the website. So be a brand new website up here hopefully in the next 30 days and we can have a have a new look there. Um, all the podcasts, all the blogs, everything's all there for everyone to look at and enjoy. So if you want to check that out there, all the information from the Moving Iron Summit coming up in Nashville, Tennessee, September 11th through the 13th. And once you have that in place, you can just send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com and you can get more information if you need to. So with that, in case you see more with Sean Hackett, squeeze some iron, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's IronComps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving on